2: Hey everybody, welcome to the Main Street Vegan Show. Do you know what this is? This is the merry month of May, which happens to be National Poultry Month. I didn't say that right. That's not what it's called. Erase that. This is International Respect for Chickens Month. That's Mm -hmm. better. May 4th, a couple of days ago, was International Respect for Chickens Day, And in honor of this month of thinking about these really special and much abused and maligned birds we will be bringing on in our first guest segment... Karen Davis, Dr. Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns. But right now, I'm here with a lovely co-host, Chrissy Benson. She's co-hosted once before. Hey, Chrissy. Hi, Victoria. Chrissy is a graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy, and she is an attorney and a writer and an editor and a counselor and all sorts of miraculous things. Thanks for being part of the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, I'm so happy, and I'm happy you picked picked this one because a lot of people just don't think about chickens even people who think about cows often don't think about chickens so why did you pick this show to co-host
3: chickens are so misunderstood and they're so disrespected and they're so interesting and Karen Davis knows so much about them, and I'm just so interested to hear her firsthand perspective. Yeah,
2: I am too. There's something about somebody that you know. I think that's why we all have our dog stories and our cat stories, and there are Horse stories and gerbil stories. The world needs more chicken stories, and Karen has plenty of them. So speaking of things that sound like chickens, (laughs) the Our Hen House wonderful women, Jasmine Jasmine Singer and Marianne Sullivan, now have a TV show as well as their award-winning podcast. And for this Mother's Day show that's up right now, Uh, I'm one of the guests, and so is the lovely Janae Claiborne. Her blog is Sweet Potato Soul. She's a terrific young chef here in New York City. She's going to pop into our show next week. But Janae and I were the guests on the Our Hen House show for this week. So you can check that out at ourhenhouse.org. Just check out Episode 7. In fact, check out all the episodes. But if you want to see Janae and me, Episode 7, We talk about some mom stuff, raising a a vegan daughter, as I have done, and Janae is working on a book with her grandmother, veganizing her grandmother's favorite recipes. Doesn't that sound lovely? It sounds
3: great, and her website is wonderful, too. Yeah,
2: yeah, great, great recipes, and she's beautiful. And speaking of raising a vegan child, my vegan child in particular, uh, the Main Street Vegan blog this week is about that. You know, I do the blog post the first Tuesday of the month and then some brilliant Main Street Vegan Academy graduate, does the other week. So this week is mine, and it's called Raising a Vegan Child, Observations from After the Fact. You can find that at MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. It talks about Adair, my daughter. She was a little bitty thing. Well, she's not little bitty anymore. Well, she's still kind of little. She's a, a petite young woman. But she and a couple of colleagues are doing something really big. It's called Urban Utopia Wildlife Rehabilitation. There are three young state-licensed wildlife rehabilitators here in New York City, and they are attempting to start the first mammalian wildlife rehab center, or, or group, you know, center, I guess, comes later when they get more money. But they've got their incorporation, and they're working on their nonprofit. They're going to have their first fundraiser July 19th. So if you're in New York City, be in touch so that I can let you know about that. But right now, there is something that you could really do, and I'm going to take advantage of the fact that it's Mother's Day to ask if you could do something nice for my kid And that is, could you just like their Facebook page? Why is it that being liked on Facebook (laughs) means so much, Chrissy?
3: I wouldn't know. I'm not on Facebook myself. (laughs) Ooh, you
2: and my husband. Yeah, you guys could get together. You have two things in common. You're both attorneys and both not on Facebook.
3: Both reluctant attorneys.
2: (laughs) Well, Yes, but I wonder if maybe the law school thing that makes a person distrustful keeps you guys off Facebook. Possibly. That's a topic. But anyway, for all of you who are on Facebook, if you could just go to Urban Utopia Wildlife Rehabilitation, there are a couple of things called Urban Utopia, but this is the wildlife rehab one, and just like the page. Just click that like button. It would mean so much to me and so much to my little girl who's no longer little. Thanks a million. Now there's somebody else out there in the world that you could help, although she doesn't need a whole lot of help. She's almost reached her Indiegogo goal, and that is Colleen Patrick Goudreau. Are you a Colleen fan?
3: Of course. Who isn't?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. Who isn't? Because she's beautiful. Her message is beautiful. Her commitment is beautiful. One of Colleen's many books, The 30 Day Vegan Kicks, um, I'm sorry, 30 Day Vegan Challenge, went out of print. Even though it did very well for Random House, you know, who can understand corporations? It's hard enough to understand real people. But Colleen is doing the work to bring the 30-Day Vegan Challenge out yet again in a new beautiful edition. So she is doing an Indiegogo, and she's almost reached her goal. But even if by the time you go there she's reached her goal... You could still send her a few bucks because I can tell you as an author, we always need money for promotion. You know, you can't just call up The View or Oprah or somebody and say, I've got this great book. You have to go through these channels of people who charge a lot of money to make those calls. So if you want to help out Colleen Patrick-Goudreau, just go to Indiegogo. And the campaign is called 30-Day Vegan Challenge. And I know she'd be real happy to have you do that. She was actually going to stop by today and be with us. Ah, But she couldn't because uh, another appointment interfered. And I did send a newsletter saying she'd be here. So anybody who is listening because of that, I do apologize. We'll get her on here again one of these days. But I hope that we made the announcement the way that she would have... Wanted it to be made, isn't it good? How it's just fun to help one another because we know the good work that everybody's doing.
3: Yeah, and everyone's so supportive in this world. Yeah, by this world, I mean the vegan world, exactly. Not exactly. The outside world.
2: Well, one day one it'll day. Yes. it'll be the whole world. I was writing today on, on my upcoming book, The Good Karma Diet, and I was working on the environmental part which is really hard for me, both because I don't have a science background, mm-hmm. I don't understand all that stuff, and it's just so hard to grasp. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand a cholesterol level, and I can understand a factory farming video. The whole planetary thing is just kind of overwhelming. What do you do with that piece?
3: It's Yeah, it can be tough, and also it's not commonly known. For instance, I subscribe to The Nation And the most recent issue was devoted to climate change. And nowhere in the entire issue did I see any mention of animal agriculture and the effect that it has on global warming. So I I sent off a letter to the editor. We'll see what we can do about that. Well, I was just going to ask
2: if you did. You know, those letters to the editor are really, really powerful. We had a, a woman who's going to be coming to Main Street Vegan Academy later this month get a letter published in the daily news because they have Mm -hmm. really taken exception to the people who would like to get the carriage horses off the streets of New York City Mm -hmm. to the point that it's almost a vendetta. And she wrote the most wonderful letter saying... I've loved your paper my whole life. Before I could even read, I used to use it to make paper hats out of And they printed it, which is very cool. Well, guess what else is very cool? Dr. Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns. She'll be joining us after these messages. So stay with us for more Main Street Vegan right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
0: online radio is bringing the message of unity to tens of thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you have been served by this programming, we invite you to support it by visiting www.unity.fm and clicking on Donate Now. Thank you for your support.
1: amazon.com or your favorite bookseller you know the saying a good deed is its own reward well moving toward a plant-based diet and vegan lifestyle is one kind and compassionate act that isn't just its own reward it will also reward you with vibrant health Boundless energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it. And according to Yogis and Unity's co-founder Charles Fillmore, even give a boost to your spiritual life. On Main Street Vegan, the radio program named for the popular book, Victoria Moran will make your move in a vegan direction easy, fun, affordable, and delicious with enticing topics and entertaining guests every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
2: Welcome back, everybody, to the Main Street Vegan Show. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest, Karen Davis, Ph.D., founder and president of United Poultry Concerns. You can find them online at www. UPC-online.org. They're a nonprofit that promotes the compassionate and respectful treatment of domestic fowl, including a sanctuary for chickens on the eastern shore of Virginia. Karen's articles appear in numerous scholarly journals, and her books include Poisoned Chickens, Poisoned Eggs, More Than a Meal, the Turkey in History, Myth, Ritual, and Reality, the Holocaust and the Henmaid's Tale, a case for comparing atrocities. Instead of Chicken, Instead of Turkey, a poultryless poultry potpourri, and a children's book, A Home for Henny. Karen and her work were profiled in the Art Trust Genesis Award winning article for the birds in the Washington Post. She is in the National Animal Rights Hall of Fame for outstanding contributions to animal liberation. Yay! Yay! From us. Welcome, Karen.
4: Well, thank you, Victoria, and thank you very much, Chrissy. I'm just thrilled to be on the show today.
2: Well, happy International Respect for Chickens <laughs> Month. Absolutely. You, sh- you should be celebrating more than anybody.
4: Well, How- uh, we are celebrating uh, a lot, and we're certainly delighted with all the people who are doing different things in their hometown. Um, libraries and uh, elsewhere to bring attention to the plight and delight of chickens. So we're happy that the message is spreading and that we're able to bring that about.
0: Ah.
2: Well, tell us, Karen, what is United Poultry Concerns and and why chickens? Because I remember when you started it and I remember thinking, people aren't going to get that. People don't relate to chickens. And now I just say, shame on me for ever having such a thought. Because you have brought chickens to the forefront, and certainly within the vegan movement, we all care, we care a lot, and we understand in ways we didn't before you founded United Poultry Concerns.
4: Well, that's what you, everything you're saying is correct. Um, certainly, back in the 1980s, I was reading extensively into animal rights literature, uh, and, and not just contemporary literature such as uh, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation and, Tom Reagan's work and other work, but also through history. There have been many writers, though not compared to the total population, but notwithstanding, many writers who have spoken out strongly against the cruelty to animals that reigns in human societies around the world and um, describing some of the horrors throughout history. So I was and also, also showing a great deal of empathy and sympathy for... Other animals, including chickens. Uh, there's quite a, an extensive literature there that uh, many people would be surprised by. But in any case, by the time the 1989, it was 1989 or so, I had pretty much decided, having learned that farmed animals represented about 95% of all abused animals on the planet, and that of those 95%, about 98 or more percent were chickens. And that knowledge, that discovery coincided with my getting to know a hen. (laughs) Actually, a hen in Maryland where my then husband and I moved uh, and rented a little tiny house and discovered that our landlady was raising a flock of about 100 chickens in order to maintain her agricultural uh, tax status. And... Two years in a row, she had chickens, and on in each on each occasion, the chickens disappeared. They were sent off to the slaughter plant. Although she tried to make it sound like they were going to live with a quote unquote farmer, but we knew better, and we knew that she was telling us that uh, stories because we had animal rights stickers on our the, on our cars. So she tried to downplay what was happening, but. In both cases, I got to know these hens. One is the story of Viva, which is right on our home page, on our website, and another little sweet hen who was left the, the second year named Tulip. And so I got to know these birds in a personal way. And then around the same time, I was one of the first volunteer interns at Farm Sanctuary, who was then a very tiny operation in Avondale, Pennsylvania. So I was really getting to know the chickens, and I've also had a lifelong affinity for birds of all kinds. And so all of those things were coming together, learning about the incredible numbers of chickens and turkeys, but certainly the incredible numbers of chickens in food production operations, plus getting to know these two hens in particular. Things were coming together that way. But as you mentioned a few minutes ago, when I mentioned to some people in the animal advocacy movement in the late 1980s, my plan to start an organization focusing on domestic fowl, that is, those birds with the misfortune of being considered a food source for human beings, I was discouraged by most of the people I spoke with from starting such an organization. I was told that no one would ever care about chickens and that we couldn't even get people to care about whales and the great apes to any great extent, so how on earth could we ever expect people to care about chickens and particularly and more generally any farmed animals since people are so invested in in eating those animals. But my attitude then was, if we take that attitude, we are creating the negative self-fulfilling prophecy that we need to uh, transcend and challenge. So there were a couple of people who told me, go for it. And uh, whether or not they had said that, I was already determined to go for it. So in 1990, I formally incorporated United Poultry Concerns as a nonprofit organization. And here we are in 2014, and this is our 24th year of being a successful, influential, and dedicated organization promoting the compassionate and respectful treatment of chickens, turkeys, and other domesticated fowl and an animal-free vegan diet and compassionate lifestyle.
3: You are a trailblazer. That's fantastic. And just historically, I'm wondering what you think with regard to people's perceptions I'm sure you've heard that Benjamin Franklin thought that the turkey, rather than the eagle, should be our national bird. Do you think that might have made any difference in people's perception of turkeys and, and domesticated birds in general?
4: Well, there's a whole story there, Victoria, um, about Benjamin Franklin, who actually wrote a letter to his, ed- his daughter, Sarah Bach, two years after the bald eagle had been formally uh, chosen by Congress to be the national bird, the national seal. So it isn't really clear what Benjamin Franklin was saying about the turkey per se, because in his letter to his daughter, he is kind of using the turkey and the eagle as ways of talking obliquely about the political situation. Um, However, his letter does show a great deal of interest in and sympathy for turkeys, so um so I, as as to your question it's a very hard question. First of all, back in that time in the 18th century, late 18th century there was a question of why turkeys were even called turkeys. Many people thought that turkeys came from Turkey and <laughs> didn't even realize that this bird for as far as anybody knows even to this day is native only to this continent, and um, as I discovered when I was researching this book, and I, ha- I haven't heard anything to the contrary since, no fossil, no Turkey fossils have been found on the European continent or in Asia or anywhere. So so the the, the origin of the Turkey and the uh, spread of the Turkey throughout the globe is is still kind of a mystery, but we do know that when the Europeans came to the Americas. There were turkeys everywhere. There were turkeys in North America, South America, Central America. The only place where there were no turkeys were in the coldest regions of Canada and upstate New York. Yet by the beginning of the 20th century, through hunting, extensive hunting of turkeys, including turkey shoots where um, uh, uh, men with muskets and then other types of weaponry would just wait until dusk, and then they would shoot all the turkeys out of the trees once they had been settled down for the night. Those turkey shoots and just other endless constant assaults on turkeys, plus the uh, erosion of the land in which turkeys lived, uh, led to um, a situation by the beginning of the 20th century where turkeys were on the verge of extinction. And the only reason that fish and wildlife even bothered and they more than bothered, they undertook an extensive effort to uh, rebuild the population. Um, The reason they did that was so they could hunt turkeys. So now there are, I don't know, 5 million or more turkeys in the Americas, and now, of course, because the land they need to occupy continually dwindles in favor of shopping centers and suburban uh, uh, growth and, and whatnot, that is now used by the same government wildlife entities as an excuse to let hunters go in and shoot them. So, turkeys, who are very intelligent birds, very very interesting birds from so many standpoints, um, uh, still have a, 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 a terrible time dealing with human beings because they are hunted for their hunted by hunters for just pleasure and whatever. And then they have been drafted into the horrible turkey industry where they're treated abominably, just like chickens. So, so far, apart from sanctuaries, and one of the things I really want to point out is the importance of sanctuaries to help show people who chickens and turkeys and other animals, farmed animals, are when they are not being abused and when they are not in factory farming conditions.
3: Yeah, I agree, of course. This is Chrissy, by the way. And Hi, um, <laughs> So shifting, shifting to chickens, um, can you talk a little bit about what happens to the male chicks of layer hens? Because that's something that I think maybe quite a few of our listeners may not be aware of. I know I had no idea um, just several years ago. Um, can you just explain a little bit about ha- what happens to the male chicks?
4: Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, there are two distinct types of chickens, although they're the the same inwardly, but they have been bred into two distinct types of chickens. This took place in the 20th century. A chicken who grows very large and very, very abnormally fast, who is designed for the meat chicken industry, and then the small, very compact hens who are used by the egg industry. So you've got the little white hens and the slightly larger brown hens who are used by the egg industry for commercial egg production. Well, since the males who are born in the automated hatcheries in the egg industry do not lay eggs, they have no commercial value for the egg industry. So as soon as they struggle out of their shells in the automated incubator drawers they are destroyed at the hatchery and it's interesting to think of a hatchery which is a, a birthplace which is mm-hmm. actually the death the death house for many many millions of newborn baby male chicks in the egg industry so what happens is there are people who have learned to sex sex uh, chickens very, very rapidly when they come out of their shells. Um, they can tell through various uh, wing patterns and, and other ways which are males and which are females, and they can make this decision very rapidly. Now, they make errors on occasion, but essentially they can make this decision rapidly. And all of the females will go down one uh, sliding uh Slide, slide, sliding board, and uh, go through all these different uh, servicing operations where they're de-beaked and undergo all these horrible mutilations. But the male chicks, they go in a different direction, and they're basically funneled into either great big plastic trash bags, and or where they suffocate to death on top of each other. And um, the uh, workers will actually tramp down the baby male chicks uh, with their feet in order to fit more chicks into the great big garbage pail with the plastic bag in it. And after the birds have filled up the, the trash can with the, inside the plastic bag, they'll just tie it up like you would tie up your, your kitchen garbage or your leaves and um, tie it up and uh, discard it. So that's one thing they do with the birds. Uh, Another method is to simply funnel the birds, channel the birds into a machine called a macerator, which grinds up the birds alive. Now, the industry likes to say, oh, well, the blades are so fast and the birds are so tiny that uh, they they always call everything, no matter how horrible and cruel, uh, humane. So they're saying, oh, well, it's humane because the birds are quickly pulverized by this machinery but actually undercover investigations have shown quite a different story that uh, the birds are crying and peeping Uh, they're just newborns and uh, uh, all kinds of horrible things happen to their bodies they get all mangled up and um, anyway that's that's another way of disposing of all the male chicks in the egg industry and any female birds who are either born deformed or who don't hatch quickly enough because everything is automated according to a time schedule Um, Another thing they do to the birds is they will shoot carbon dioxide gas into the uh, containment, um, whether it's the plastic bag or whatever, to uh, destroy the birds that way. And, of course, carbon dioxide is a horrible way to death, uh, to die, because when you are in a carbon dioxide chamber, every breath you take to escape the noxious gas causes you to inhale more of the noxious gas and it's extremely painful and it's very panic inducing in the victim. And also they shoot this carbon dioxide into these containers which they, is, is a major way of uh, destroying all the unwanted um, hens in the egg industry who have been living in the battery cages. They'll throw them all into these uh, metal containers and then they'll shoot these hoses full of carbon dioxide in and what happens is the cold carbon dioxide will actually freeze their lungs. Freeze their lungs. So, so Karen. Yeah, in other to-
2: words, we need to stop eating chickens and eggs, even if people well, in feel nutshell, they can't in an go shell, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even <laughs> if people. I mean, I think the work of Nick Cooney, who we had on a few months ago talking about veganomics, he makes a lot of sense. If you can't go vegan today. Get rid of chickens and eggs today and move toward going vegan.
4: Well, something that people need to think about, among many other things, is that when people switch from eating larger animals to smaller animals, such as chickens and fish and, of course, eggs, they're causing many more animals to be brought into the world to suffer and die for them. Um, than if they're eating portions of larger animals. Not that we would in any way suggest that they should switch to eating a cow or a sheep in lieu of eating a chicken or a or an egg or a fish, which we do not at all support. But um, there is no question. I mean, right now, uh, something like 47 billion out of 65 billion land animals being slaughtered each year worldwide are chickens. And at least 5 billion hens at any given time worldwide are in battery cages. And um, in this country, in the the United States, something like 9 out of 10 billion animals raised and slaughtered for food are chickens. Now, we're talking about chickens bred for the meat industry because it's the chickens who bred for the meat industry who are far and away the largest number of land animals. They're the ones who, for example, right up the road from where we're located here in Virginia, at any given time in Delaware and the eastern shore of Virginia and Maryland, over a half a billion chickens are enclosed in 500-foot-long, filthy, polluted, putrid, pathogen-filled, dark, sunless buildings. This is how chickens bred and raised for the meat industry live. They are forced to grow so large and so fast. Again, picture a six week old chicken who would barely weigh a pound and who would be very, very small and would be running all over the place full of energy. Picture this chicken weighing not a pound or less but weighing five or six or more pounds at the same age of barely over a month old sitting in these cesspools, because basically that's what these houses in which they live amount to in terms of the, the pollution. Picture them sitting there on their crippled legs, because any time you see a chicken leg detached from the chicken as a something people are gnawing on, that leg was filled with pain when it was still attached to the living bird, because... It has been documented now since the 1970s, and things are even worse now for these birds, that they are forced to grow so fast, that is to put on so much muscle tissue, i.e. meat, within a few weeks of having been born, that their entire skeletal system cannot keep up. Their bones are very soft because of their, their babies. And also because they're kept in the dark. When you're raised in the dark, whether you're a human being or a chicken, your bones don't develop properly. Your bones are soft. Um, The cartilage is uh, abnormal. These birds also have very, very weak hearts and lungs. They are also filled with diseases beyond description, as I have described in my book, Prisoned Chickens, Poisoned Eggs, and Karen, we're going to get
2: into industry. that. This is I'm I'm seeing that we have to go to a break, but this is just a perfect time to come back and talk about why on earth, with all this known, the v- majority of people out there look at chickens when they're turned into meat as a health food. We'll be back after these messages.
0: We nearing the end of the world. Reading the Book of Revelation, you might think so, and it doesn't end well. But is it possible that the Bible's darkest story is a positive tale? Author Ed Townley, host of the Unity Online Radio Show, "The Bible Alive," thinks so. A Bible enthusiast, Townley focuses on the metaphysical meanings rather than the literal text. In Kingdom Come, new from Unity Books, Townley takes a fresh approach to revelation. The kingdom, Townley explains, doesn't await us in the afterlife. It's ours to experience today as we learn to find the good even in our darkest challenges. Explore revelation in a new light. Order the book Kingdom Come online today at unitybooks.org. Rami and his guests will engage in lively, humorous discussions about what it means to be a spiritual human being in the 21st century. How to Be a Holy Rascal, Wednesdays at 11 a.m., only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
1: Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran.
2: Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Main Street Vegan on Unity Online Radio. I'm Victoria Moran. I am here with my co-host, Chrissy Benson, and our wonderful and brilliant guest, Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns. You can find them at UPC.
3: So, Karen, I would like to ask you what you know of Tyson Foods. And particularly, a few months ago, I heard a man named Chris Leonard talk about a book he wrote called The Meat Racket, which was essentially an expose of the horrific practices of Tyson Foods. Now, Chris was a really nice, down-to-earth, informed man who'd seen the insides of slaughterhouses and the appalling way that Tyson treats its own workers, and of course, the birds. And, so, and he was so impact, affected by it that he wrote a whole book about it. And yet at the time that I met him, Chris was still eating chicken and meat in general. And I, I did, you know, point out to him that that somewhat negated the message of his book. but I just my, my reaction was I felt so disheartened that someone who's seen firsthand these atrocities, And yet, still eats meat. And I'm sure you encounter that sort of situation all the time. I'm just wondering what your perspective is and what we can do to just change how people see these birds.
4: Well, that's a big question, Chrissy. First of (laughs) all, your description of this author's uh, continuing to eat chickens after he has been inside uh, these slaughterhouses and inside these horrific chicken houses where the birds have grown to become a slaughter, slaughtered animal um, that they continue to eat the birds after having lived through all that and uh, there was a story in um, uh, uh, an extended investigative report in I think it was Harper's Magazine in 2013 where the writer spent weeks or months in a uh, a, a cow slaughter operation and And it's just, as you say, disheartening and and disgusting and and really, in my opinion, unconscionable and utterly perplexing that a person could go into these places, see the filth, the cruelty, the the horrible treatment that the chickens and the cows are subjected to, see the miserable conditions that the people who work in these places are subjected to, and yet still come out the other end and say, but I still eat these, these, these chickens. I still ha- want a steak and all of that. So I, I really have no sympathy for that point of view, quite the opposite. And I'm sick of coddling people <laughs> about these things. I think it's disgusting. I think it's as unconscionable as keeping slaves after knowing what human slavery is about. Well, these birds are and other animals are slaves. But uh, the, the idea that you continue to participate in something so ugly, so cruel and vicious without any justification for doing it other than you just want to, um, I, 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 it leaves me just breathless and uh, without, as I say, without empathy for that point of view. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I, de- I, I definitely
3: understand. What? I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
4: Um, I am very familiar with Tyson. First of all. Tyson, Tyson started out in the 1930s in Springdale, Arkansas, where they're headquartered to this day. During the Depression, they were re- really a, a more of a fruit and vegetable operation. They were just small in Springdale, Arkansas. But during the Depression, they started trucking chickens to Chicago and other urban areas in Illinois and elsewhere, and gradually developed this this huge, well, now, I think they're, if they're not the largest, they're uh, among the very largest global chicken empires on the planet. And not only chickens, but pigs and cows and so on. Um, Down here on the eastern shore of Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, Tyson has a huge uh, 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 presence because they have chicken houses all over the place. And in fact, if I drive up Route 13 here, the main highway on the peninsula, where as I said earlier, a half a billion or more chickens are confined in filthy dark warehouses um, on the eastern shore, uh, being raised to go to the slaughter plants. I pass two huge slaughter complexes. Going north on the Route 13, I first come to the huge Purdue Farms, what they call processing plant, nice discreet little sign, Purdue sign there in the grass with uh, huge parking lots and cars all over the place and just a huge slaughter plant, a huge uh, a torture chamber right there. And then you go up a little farther into Acomac County and there is a huge Tyson process, chicken processing plant, slaughter plant. And once again, you see the same thing. You see uh, it's set back off the road There are millions of cars in the parking lots and trucks are going in and out all day. And you see when you're driving up and down the road here and the back roads as well, you see endless truckloads of baby birds in these trucks going to the Tyson chicken slaughterhouse and or the Purdue chicken slaughterhouse. And one of the most horrific things is, looking at these birds themselves, because when you go into a chicken house, you're expecting to see baby chickens maybe who are, again would be lively and running around and so on. But what you see in the houses and then you see in the trucks is these birds are just sitting there like lumps of dough. They're not even moving, they're so terrified they have known nothing but human violence in every form all their lives, and now they have the utmost human violence confronting them. They're going to be tortured with electric shocks, even before they've had their throats cut. They are going to be paralyzed with those electric shocks, so that their feathers will come out more easily after they're dead. They are going to have their their necks only partially cut, so that they will bleed out in a what they call a bleed-out tunnel. And... You cannot put into words what is done to these birds by the Tyson Food Company or the Purdue or any of these other companies. They are completely tortured. They are tortured with electricity. They are tortured with knives. They are tortured with, with what has been done to their bodies to make their bodies just a, a pain-wracked, disease-filled body even before they get to the slaughterhouse so it cannot be exaggerated so what it takes to get people to understand what they're putting into their body who they're putting into their body the condition of total misery that they are making themselves and if they have children their children out of actually i i believe that when you subject your children to having to eat these these birds you are practicing child abuse. You're not only setting your children up for all kinds of physical health ailments later in life, or increasingly, as we know, pretty quickly in life with cholesterol and obesity and everything else. But you're lying to your children. If you're knowledgeable and you're feeding your children this type of this type of uh, diet, you are you're you're doing something to your children. Whereby, if they saw how these chicken nuggets and these Tyson uh, ready ready baked uh, items that they're always advertising on television were act, actually actually came to pass, children would be totally traumatized. Most children would be completely traumatized by it. And um, so Tyson is, you know, they're a huge company. They um, have a worldwide uh, influence and uh, they've got investments, whether it's in Russia or, or Venezuela or wherever, they're all over the planet. So my view of Tyson and of all the companies that are just like Tyson is that um, I, I, I wish them ill and <laughs> I long for their total destruction and extinction. And when I hear people say, oh, well, don't worry, you know, you know, activists say, well, don't worry, you know, vegetarianism isn't going to come overnight, As if that were something to feel good about. On the contrary. I want to see veganism come overnight, but that's what needs to happen. And I Mm -hmm. want to see the total extinction of all the Tysons in the world because they are an evil empire.
2: I wish you could package your energy and (laughs) inject all of us. Chrissy has something and then I have a question.
3: Yeah, I was just going to mention that when I told Chris Leonard that I'm vegan and that I don't eat these products, it was... He looked startled and I could tell that it simply hadn't occurred to him that that was an option. And so I think I think for some people, they just don't realize that there's something they can do on a daily basis. We can't fight Tyson Foods directly. We can't fight Monsanto directly. We don't have the same power that they have, but we can simply stop eating their products. Stop eating these animals and stop buying their products. Well, you need to introduce him to Karen Davis. And she
2: would make short work of him. Now, Karen, what I hear from people who are trying to be conscientious is they say, oh, my gosh, you know, I don't eat those kinds of chickens. I don't eat those kinds of eggs. I only eat happy meat and free range eggs. What do you say to them?
4: Well, first of all, we encounter many people who say those things. We table at many vegetarian festivals and other types of festivals in the regular mainstream public sphere, and of course we have a, a website and we are constantly in contact with people who will want to ask us. Well, what do you think about what do you think about this or that farm? You know, they're supposed to be an alternative. They're supposed to be humane. Do you know anything about them? What do you think? And my, spon- my response is. You tell them the truth. Now, if people go to our website, they can click on, right there on our homepage, poultry and eggs, free-range poultry and eggs, colon, not all they're cracked up to be. So we have all of our literature, including that one, in print, and we also have it available right there on our homepage, which people can click on and they can read for themselves, where we tell the facts. So I believe in telling people the facts. When people say to me, "Well, you know, I quit eating battery eggs, but uh, I only eat free-range eggs now," so I say, and you know, they're kind of looking at me with a like, "I should give them an Attaboy or something," you know. (laughs) And uh, but I'm not, you know. I don't. I say to them, "Well, it's really good that you stopped eating um, eggs from battery-caged hens, and and it's really good that you did that. But um, do you know anything about how so-called free-range eggs are actually produced?" And they'll usually say, "Well," Um, no, but, well, I'm, the hands are outside and blah, 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 so then I begin, again, I'm not going to yell at people or put them down or anything, but I am going to tell them what free range really means. I'm going to tell them about free range operations that I have personally visited. I'm going to tell them that the more people who turn to eating free range poultry and egg products, the more the companies that produce these products will want to expand their operation and the number of birds they keep in order to meet with an increasing demand, ironically, for these so-called humanely raised products. I explained to them about the destruction of the male chicks by egg producers or egg farmers, regardless of whether it's a so-called industrial farm or just a family farm. I explained to them what animal farming has traditionally entailed. So people are divested of the false idea that all the problems started in the mid 20th century with something called factory farming and that before that, animals were treated humanely and, uh, and, and were uh, running around all the time in the sunshine and whatnot. A history of true animal farming, whether it's in the, the Americas or Britain or uh, Germany or Russia or anywhere else, tells a completely different story. So I try to help people to understand for example, there's no such thing as humane slaughter because the 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 throat and the neck areas, the skin, the trachea, all of these areas uh, next to the uh, the face of a chicken or a human being or a cow, is filled with pain receptors. So chickens are just like us in having a neck. Uh, excuse me, a knife slicing through pain receptors of the skin of their throats and going into their jugular veins or their carotid arteries. It's an agonizing experience. And I remind people that for some reason, no human being that I've ever heard of has ever asked to be euthanized, that is humanely or mercifully killed by being hung upside down by their heels and having their throats cut because we instinctively know that that would be a horrible, painful way to die, that you are choking on your own blood, that it's a horrible way to die. And we always hear, when we hear about people being beheaded or um, of different uh, cultures uh, in a time of war, splitting the enemy's throat or something, this is always played up as, well, what a horrible thing to do to another human being. Well, it's exactly as horrible, as cruel, as brutal to do to a chicken. So there's no such thing as humane slaughter. And then as I mentioned in the commercial slaughterhouses, before the birds even undergo having their necks partially cut, they subject them to cold, salted, paralyzing electricity filled water. They drag them through these troughs, the Electrical water is splashing all over the place. I remind people that we have discovered that you cannot kill outright one single human being by electricity on death row, let alone merely intend to paralyze thousands and thousands of chickens per minute running by through and through an electrified water trough. So the whole idea of...
2: Yeah, I'm so start, start. so sorry, I got to stop you again. We're down to our last minute, and I want you to have at least fifty seconds of that to tell us about your wonderful sanctuary that people can come to visit and see chickens who really are happy.
4: Well, certainly, um our sanctuary uh, keeps me on in place as far as remembering who who United poultry concerns and who I am speaking for and fighting for, because I'm in their presence every day. I see these chickens coming from these horrific conditions. I see them come to our sanctuary and gradually begin to feel safe again, to feel that they can move around without fear, to begin to find happiness. And our chickens also enable me to speak with authority and firsthand knowledge about the fact that who the industry says they are is not who they are. The industry always tries to represent chickens and turkeys as, oh, they were bred for the cage, they can't live outside the cage, and uh, we pamper our chickens, and, you know, they're happier in in confinement, and they are scared of sunlight and grass and all that, because they'll actually say that. But the fact is, inside each bird is an intact bird who has suffered from physical debilities imposed by human beings and by environments that are even worse for them than they would be for a human being because these environments from which they came, imposed by human beings, are completely alien to them, have nothing, there is nothing in their psyches that can in any way make make sense of the horrible conditions in which they are forced to live. So it is a miracle to see them come out of those conditions and begin to spread their wings, begin to dust bathe and lie in the sun and soak up the sunlight. And I should say quickly, in response to what Chrissy was saying about Ira Glass, Ira Glass's uh, visit of This American Life on National Public Radio, when I challenged him to come and visit our chickens... Ten ten seconds, Karen. When I challenged him... He had a nasty show on This American Life, making fun of chickens, and I challenged him to come and meet our chickens. And that led him to not only become a vegetarian, but to announce on the David Letterman show that meeting our chickens led him to become a vegetarian because the chickens had such a profound effect upon
1: him.
2: Wow. So follow Ira's lead. Visit United Poultry Concerns when you're going to be in Virginia. Visit another farm sanctuary. I'm going to be out in Orland, California this very weekend, Mother's Day weekend, at the Farm Sanctuary Hoedown. So if you're anywhere in the Sacramento area, you can come to see me there. Thanks to Chrissy Benson for co-hosting. Thanks, Jeff, for engineering. And God bless you, Karen Davis. You are a saint for chickens and for the rest of us. And everybody, eat your veggies. We'll see you next time.
1: Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey.
5: Do you think you know all you want to know about the characters in the Bible? Do you know who could be called the king who loved too much? Or what it means to be a Jezebel? Or that the best love story in the Bible begins with the declared commitment of two women? The Bible's symbolic meaning can help you transform your life and discover the presence and power of God within you. Find out what these characters can teach you about your own life today by tuning into Biblical Power for Your Life. Each week, co-hosts Rev. Karen Tudor and E.J. Niles present a Bible character from a historical, cultural, psychological, and symbolic perspective. Your comments and questions are part of this lively discussion. Tune in every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, and power up your life only at Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.